2: there's a riddle that everyone has in their minds in Xinjiang and the riddle is like where is the line like what is acceptable what can I do and you know what can I not do if I if I go to the to to the market today um, and I buy diapers for my kids is the AI going to like me more because I am you know a good parent you know if I go to the gas station I'm refilling my car if I do things in a different way if i fill it up too fast and leave too quickly or the you know the guards find me suspicious will the ai you know lower my trustworthiness just because i've done something that it has detected that is unusual in some way and that's the riddle that no one is ever sure how to solve i mean it's like anything you do at any time can be taken as a crime against the state and you know you can be swept away by these sudden police cars that come in and Taken to a concentration camp. So that—that that is the effect of you know when we're talking cameras and surveillance technologies and human police officers watching the streets. Um, it's really a panopticon in which no one knows for sure where that line is and whether they should cross it.
1: I'm Bryce Clem, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August twenty fourth, twenty twenty one. I spoke with Jeffrey Kane, an investigative journalist and the author of the new book. The Perfect Police State, an undercover odyssey into China's terrifying surveillance dystopia of the future. We had a wide-ranging discussion around the Chinese government's use of surveillance technology to suppress its weaker population, the history of Xinjiang since 9-11, the development of China's tech industry, and a lot of other issues. It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 24th, China's Perfect Police State in Xinjiang. Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining me. My first question is simply, why did you decide to write this book?
2: So, Bryce, I had been based in Asia and the Middle East for 12 years. And, you know, I I had been covering technology business, looking at some of the big picture uh, tech developments around the world and artificial intelligence and voice recognition, facial recognition, um, Silicon Valley, the the iPhone. I mean, I I was a reporter who was deep into this world of new technologies being rolled out uh, not just in the US but also in places like uh, you know China Myanmar South Korea Japan Turkey and I was really interested in learning about how authoritarian governments in particular were using these technologies to surveil and control their people it was sort of my beat you could say for about 10 years preceding the book and so I had visited Xinjiang China this region in western China A few times over the years, I knew that it was a pretty uh, bad situation. I knew that the Uyghurs, just like the Tibetans and other groups in China, were oppressed and were treated as others and and potential terrorists. But it wasn't really until my most recent trip in December 2017 that I saw just the, the extent, the extremity to which you know, the government was just taking its surveillance uh, forward. I mean, I I had seen a lot of things in my own journalism career. I had seen genocides and covered massacres and tribunals and and just, you know, lots of crazy things out there. But I had never quite seen a state, you know, in a region of Asia that's rather obscure to Westerners um, that had just become so massively surveilled on, you know, on every possible level. I mean, we're talking every square foot, is uh covered with a camera. There are police pillboxes on every corner. You know, there are um there's an artificial intelligence system that monitors everyone. And you know, when I went there in December 2017, I was actually detained briefly. I had been taking photos that the police didn't like. Um, they told me to get a ticket out to leave the next morning and of course I did. I I feel lucky that it did, that it wasn't any worse for me. I mean, there are, you know, westerners in China who are actually in prison now. It really just hit me, you know, that trip to Kashgar, which is the historical uh, heartland of the Uyghurs, this beautiful old city um, that's not far from not far from Pakistan and Kyrgyzstan, just on how much of a lockdown it was. I mean, I, I stepped off the airplane and I felt I had entered this this like this future dystopia that was dreamed up in some, you know, old 1980s film, like a Blade Runner type film. Uh, you know, in which everyone is just constantly being monitored and they have to watch what they say and they're not sure who's their friend and who's their enemy. Everybody, you know, there are spies in the population and snitches. And, uh, you know, like literally, I mean, a few few times I thought like maybe a robot would pop out or like there would be some kind of futuristic gadget that I had never seen. Um, Of course, that never happened. But I was just shocked and just blown away at how quickly the Chinese Communist Party Um, had set up this surveillance dystopia that, you know, appeared, at least from the outside, appeared it could do anything. And that, you know, the police had total power. The authorities had total control. And, you know, everyone was essentially subject to the state's whims. If they did something wrong, they would be taken away to one of many hundreds of concentration camps and brainwashed. They had to correct their thinking. They would be um, you know, monitor it as they went through this brainwashing process. And there would be these, you know, surveillance systems telling the police what everyone's thinking and, you know, what they might do in the future. I mean, I could go on and on with this, but just the the intensity of the place, of Xinjiang, I knew that this story had to be told because I knew it would have major implications for humanity eventually. This would not simply be limited to one obscure region of China.
1: So there's a lot to unpack there. And and before we get into the the history of what you call the situation, I want you to just outline for our listeners the current situation in Xinjiang, which you touched on a little bit, but how many Uyghurs are currently detained in the re-education camps? And what are the living conditions like for those not in the camps?
2: Sure. So most estimates place the number of people detained at between about a million to 1.8 million. 1.8 million is the upward estimate. It might be totally accurate, at least according to the documentation I found. So this is, just to put this into context, this is one-tenth of the minority population of Xinjiang, China. Uh, the The region has about 11 to 12 million Uyghurs, Kazakhs, uh, Kyrgyz people. So these are different people from primarily Muslim ethnic groups, uh, Muslim minorities. Uh, that have been targeted in a war on terror that China started a war on terror that you know China claims is uh, like like a terrorist war that is supposedly being waged against China by these you know supposed Uyghur terrorists but it's a it's an overblown threat um so this is one tenth of the population in concentration camps, and just to put that in perspective, that number so this is now believed to be. The largest internment of ethnic minorities since the Holocaust. We we haven't really seen anything on this scale. I mean, you know, there were uh, Soviet gulags and all that, but we've never really seen anything quite like this since since Nazi Germany. You know, rounded up uh, Jews and minorities and, and disabled people and other groups. You know, in in this search for the the uber the the master race. And I should clarify, um, you know that there are no mass graves here in China. We're not talking gas chambers and mass graves, but what we are talking about uh, is a very insidious and and relatively quiet campaign to erase a people's identity and sense of self and memory and culture so they can be assimilated with total force uh, into the majority Han Chinese ethnic group. Uh, on top of this, the Chinese government has now been documented using forced sterilizations on Uyghur women, um, which you know they say the, the goal is to you know to engage in population and family control, so it will raise you know the the economic standing of the region, which was traditionally uh, very poor. But the reality is that uh, you know many international scholars think that this is an attempt to simply exterminate an ethnic group and a religious group to to ensure that you know whatever next generation does exist uh, will simply be so small that it is assimilated. You know, into the rest of the Chinese nation and it doesn't have its own separate identity.
1: So let's rewind a bit. I was wondering if you could tell us about the impact of 9-11 on China and specifically its impacts on the Uyghur community.
2: Yes. Uh so 9-11 was really the turning point. Just to give a little historical background, the region of Xinjiang has always been a somewhat restive region in you know in the history of the Chinese Communist Party. It was always a bit Far off a of frontier, the the term Xinjiang even translates into new dominion or new frontier, um, and that shows you how the Chinese state sees it. But it wasn't really until nine eleven that these uh, these Chinese led campaigns against the region started picking up, and that's because of the you know the, the rhetoric of the global war on terror. You know the U S had deployed. You know this is very relevant now that we're. There's there's a whole Afghanistan situation going on. The U.S. government uh, had deployed this language of terrorism, accusing you know large swaths of of certain populations of being terrorists, and it had put a number of people, including Uyghurs from China, in Guantanamo Bay, starting in 2002. It turned out that pretty much all of these uh, Uyghurs were simply uh, either innocent of the charges or were being accused. Of you know terrorist sympathies that they didn't really have. I mean, maybe they had gotten weapons training, or they they certainly had a a grudge and they wanted to wage a campaign against China. But they were certainly not you know global jihadists who were you know well aligned with Al Qaeda or other the Taliban or other terrorist actors. But China seized on this the fact that the U.S. had put these twenty two Uyghur men found in Afghanistan and Pakistan in Guantanamo and housed them without charge allowed the Chinese government to come in and say, see, you know, see, look, we've been saying this all along. The Uyghur people are terrorists. There is a major terrorist problem in Western China. Uh, We need to take care of it. And this gave China, in the eyes of much of the international community, a license uh, to launch an all out war on terror style campaign against the Uyghur people of, of the West. Um, And you know that would include police roundups and beatings, torture. I interviewed a number of Uyghurs who were taken away to like detention centers and and tortured and beat up during these years. Um, And a lot of these resentments boiled over in 2009 after the the Beijing Olympics. There were massive protests in the regional capital of Urumqi, which caused the Chinese state in response to step up its brutality even more. And so we see this pattern happening where. The Chinese state simply does not want to show restraint. It wanted to create a total security state in Xinjiang that would wipe out any dissidents in addition to, you know, the actual relatively small terrorist threat in the region. And so every time there was some kind of Uyghur protest or, you know, there were a few terrorist attacks, too, every time there was a Uyghur, um, you know, pushback by extremist elements in this population, the Chinese state would keep responding with more and more heavy-handed measures against the entire population rather than isolating the extremists who were, you know, who were among this population. Um, and it was finally, with the development of uh, these new and novel technologies that started in the early two thousand, uh, early 2010s, around 2012 and 2013, there were global developments in AI, big data, uh, neural, deep neural networks. Um, you know these are some of the the major technologies that that increasingly power the global economy and technology in places as far off as Silicon Valley to Beijing to Russia to Turkey. I mean that these are very integral technologies to the way we live now, and the Chinese state saw these early on under under the President Xi Jinping and decided that they could use these technologies to do things like try and predict based on big data on the population. Who was likely to commit a terrorist act or an atrocity or a crime in the future and this is what ultimately led to the establishment of the current situation in Xinjiang um, starting in two thousand sixteen and then accelerating since then. This is the total surveillance dystopia in which everyone is being watched constantly and anyone can be taken away at any time for pretty much any reason you know for what we would call a pre-crime. Or predictive policing, and you know this is straight out of sci-fi. This is Minority Report, the movie with Tom Cruise. Um, the government there actually sweeps in and will take away people to concentration camps because the AI systems have declared that they will commit a crime in the future for no clear
1: reason at all. So, so I want to I want to jump in jump in here a bit before we get any further in the technology and just go back to when Xi Jinping takes power in 2013, and. Let's talk about the situation in Xinjiang in 2013 and 2014 when he comes into power. Why did the Chinese government's policy change so sharply then? So President Xi Jinping
2: was a nationalist at heart. He had, you know, like many of his generation, uh he had suffered through the Cultural Revolution, which was the decade of, of this communist kind of red mayhem in the nineteen sixties and nineteen seventies. Um and like many from this generation, he formed a worldview. That China, since this period, you know, had been growing enormously, was a, an, an enormous economic success story, uh, you know, starting in the 1980s to, to the present. But it had been running into the problem that many, you know, growing empires have had throughout history, and that's the, uh, you know, the, the decadence that comes with it. You know, he had this feeling that the Chinese people had had lost their ideological core that they that they were drifting away from, um, you know, the the good communist uh, virtues of the past under, you know, and I I don't mean literally, uh, these are good virtues, but, you know, under Chairman Mao, there was a certain nostalgia for what had existed before, the sense of national unity and pride that was giving away to corruption and crime and selfishness. And so Chairman Xi really set out on a mission for, you know, for many years, you know, it's still going on. But to, to rejuvenate the Chinese nation, to rejuvenate the Chinese Communist Party, and to bring it back to that ideological core. And that also included a massive project, uh, which I'm sure everyone has heard of. It's the Belt and Road Project, um, to really expand Chinese economic and infrastructure based power through Central Asia to the Middle East, to parts of East Europe and even Southern Europe. I mean, out to Italy at some points, um, and also to expand its sea power, so through the South China Sea, you know, setting up new trading networks and new ports in places like uh, Indonesia, Thailand, uh, Sri Lanka, down to Sub-Saharan Africa. Chinese money had had begun sweeping the world, but what happened is that Chairman Xi Jinping realized that you know he had a problem in this particular region of Xinjiang. This was the gateway. And the terminus for a lot of the planned infrastructure projects, the the roads, you know, the way that Chinese power would be projected out into the world through countries like Kazakhstan and and India and Pakistan, which are very strategically important to China. Xinjiang was, you know, was witness to a number of terrorist attacks in 2013 and 14. Uh, There was one attempted airplane hijacking. There was allegedly a Uyghur attack in Kunming at a train station, which is not in Xinjiang, but, you know, was, according to the Chinese government, was perpetrated by Uyghurs. There was also a bombing, a car bomb that went into Tiananmen Square at one point. This was in 2013. Uh, And just to give a comparison, that would be like a car bomb going off in, you know, in Times Square, Piccadilly Circus, somewhere really important. And this really struck at the heart of the, the Chinese state. Xi Jinping realized that you know if china is going to ascend to its supposed past glory then you know it's going to have to tame the region of xinjiang it's going to have to tame this region turn it less into a frontier uh, that borders afghanistan and pakistan and and bring it more back towards the realm of the chinese center which means that its citizens must be taught to be good you know good han chinese communists you know good people who follow the 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 party they're loyal to the state and they aren't going to be harboring terrorist thoughts.
1: So one person that you mentioned in the book is Chen who who's a member of the Chinese Communist Party and Chinese government, who had previously been a part of the Tibet Autonomous Region or the head of the Tibet Autonomous Region. I was wondering if you could talk about what his effects were on Xinjiang and why specifically they chose him to lead Xinjiang.
2: Yes, yeah, so Chen Changguo was a longtime party member he had risen through the ranks and had eventually been assigned to, to Tibet. So Tibet, as I'm sure many people know, is is one of those regions of China that has you know also been it was invaded um, under the Chinese Communist Party and it's been subjugated to colonial style you know assimilation and repression. So Tibet really is you know I think of all the regions in China that have suffered, Tibet was really the first to become the global poster child. Uh, And just simply one of the first in general to be subject to really just ham-fisted, hard-handed efforts by the Chinese Communist Party to, you know, to turn this region into something it was not. And so uh, Chen Changguo arrived and he had spent the previous years uh, before Xinjiang experimenting with new systems of establishing, you know, more human-based police security efforts. So this was before all the technology had taken over. Uh, one of these was the the ten household system so in in Tibet, this was pioneered mainly in tibet and it's a system in which the the police would designate different neighborhood administrative units based on groupings of ten households and all these groupings would choose one household or one person in the group to step up and sort of and be the the household the ten household leader. This would be someone. Um, who would keep an eye on the group of ten households? Who would go around and knock on the door and you know check on families and you know make sure that everything is in order? There are no unannounced guests. Um, you know, people, for example, would have to like if they were going to have guests over, they would have to tell the household unit just get their approval ahead of ahead ahead of time. Um, and also, the chief of these household systems, they would engage in sort of divide and conquer strategies to keep people scared. They would. Um, you know, pit different households against each other. So, you know, you spy on that guy over there and, you know, you'll gain loyalty with me. But then that other person is also spying on you and trying to get loyalty with the household chief in the same way. So it's like everyone's watching everyone and everyone's snitching and reporting on everyone. And if you don't partake in the system, then you're an enemy and you might be labeled enemy of the state and taken off to a prison somewhere in China. So I would say that this is the main pioneering effort of Chen Changguo in Tibet, among many other things that he did to to elevate the status of the security state there. It wasn't until uh, 2016, late 2016, that the Chinese Communist Party announced that Chen Guo would now be moving to Xinjiang. And what this signified to watchers of the Communist Party is that Chen Changguo has very much been groomed to be one of these Communist Party security men. You know, every, everyone in the Communist Party at the very top has kind of a different role. You know, some are economic planners. Others, you know, they come from the factories. They they know industrial policy. Some of them are military men. In this case, uh, it's very clear that Chen Changguo was, was very much about internal security. And what that means is that as he continues rising in the Communist Party, he'll probably be, you know, some kind of... Stasi-like figure who oversees this vast security apparatus and has files on everyone. That's that's sort of the role that he plays in China. In Xinjiang, he took many of these these tent household efforts and uh, expanded them in ways that weren't really seen before. Uh, I, I personally think, and this is more my own thinking of him, and you know, not so much like what a, a document says anywhere. It's hard to know a lot about him because he's very secretive, but I, I think that he was one of the first to realize that he could fuse those old style human uh, security efforts like the 10 household system or the, the police uh, checkpoints on the street, the, the police pillboxes that check your documents everywhere you go. He could fuse those with these new technologies uh, that were emerging And, you know, really, when you look at Chinese uh, websites and look at, so for example, government tender documents and public security documents, it's not until he arrives in late 2016 that suddenly these tender documents are making calls for, you know, we need a good voice recognition system. We need more cameras here, more cameras there. We're looking to hire a company to do this all for us. And then on top of that, we saw the expansion of the concentration camps Um, under his watch. He is now sanctioned by the U.S. government uh, on allegations of massive human rights abuses, including accusations of genocide against the Uyghurs. And um, it's really because of that network of concentration camps that he oversaw that, you know, he's really lost whatever good graces existed before of the international community.
1: So you just mentioned it, a little bit there, and I think it's a good segue to get into the the Chinese tech industry's relationship to the developments in Xinjiang. So, as this repression is really beginning that you've that you've just outlined, the the tech industry is developing, and in some senses, definitely booming, especially in areas of artificial intelligence research. So, I was just wondering if you could talk about companies like SenseTime and Megv their development and their connection to Xinjiang at a very basic level. You know, what is SenseTime and And what is Megvi? Yeah.
2: So SenseTime and Megvi are two major competitors who work in the realm of, of facial and voice recognition technologies. They're currently two of the largest businesses. They're major multinational corporations. They're not just local companies in China that are making basic software. But we're talking two major multinational corporations that are in direct competition with each other, that are going around the world and trying to sell these novel technologies to governments and and police forces that would allow them to surveil their people. So s- since time in Megvi, um, you asked about their relationship to the Chinese state and that relationship is not always as clear cut as appears in, in media articles or just kind of gets out there. What their relationship started out as was these companies uh, attempting to raise money on their own for distant technologies that a lot of people knew would eventually get big and would be extremely profitable, but you know, as in any technology industry, no one really knows for sure what the timing will be. You know, when are those profits going to come? And if we move in too early, are we just you know hitting the wrong timing? And are we going to fail because we can't raise capital? These are questions that any technology entrepreneur has to has to grasp with before they make these major decisions. But what Megvi and SenseTime had on their side uh, was that they had entered this realm of surveillance technology right before the Chinese states started getting deeply interested in deploying it across Xinjiang and other parts of China. Um, So it wasn't really until the, the middle part of the last decade, kind of around 2014 to 16. That the Chinese government and numerous other firms began establishing major venture capital throughout China. That you know, it's just so ironic. It's it's the Communist Party, and then you have these venture capital arms that are you know going around China and looking to snatch up you know who's the latest talent from Stanford and MIT, and how can we get them in in a great uh, you know Chinese startup? It's truly like you know capitalism, the, the height of capitalism within. A communist architecture. It's it's one of those things that you only really see in a place like China, and these two companies, SenseTime and Megvii, due to you know just the major developments, the cash coming in, uh, they were able to grow massively in that middle part of the decade. So the the real turning point was in 2016 and 17 when there were a series of Go matches. So Go is the it's the Chinese board game with all these little pieces and it's sort of like chess, but just more complicated. You move the pieces around and, and circle your enemy. There were two major AI battles with human Go champions in Korea and China in 2016 and 17. And both times the, this Google made AI system called DeepMind. Uh, actually it's called AlphaGo. The company's, the the startup was called DeepMind that made it. Both times the AI beats these Chinese players, the Chinese and Korean players, these were world champions. I mean, these were, you know, the the entire world was shocked. I was actually at one of the matches at a hotel in South Korea covering it. And even back then, I I didn't totally realize that the significance of this at the time, but people who were deeply involved in the technology world told me that, you know, this is something like, this is going to change everything. We don't know what it's going to change, but it's just it's it's a new chapter in the history of technology and its interactions with humanity, and so what happened is that China started an arms race, uh, you could say an AI arms race, and it, it wanted to catch up with companies like Google that had been developing AI that had been developing all these things. The reason China was freaked out was because first of all, this was China's national game, and its own national world champion had lost. Um, but also it realized just how far ahead the U.S. was in developing these AI technologies. So that's when companies like SenseTime and Megvii, Huawei, all these firms were just, just a wash in cash. They got so much state funding, so much VC funding. Um, and it was at that moment that they got closer to their ultimate dream, which would be um some kind of IPO on a stock market somewhere that's actually a lot harder now because both the US and China have cracked down on you know these big IPOs happening that make their founders rich but it it brought these companies closer to this dream of establishing you could say a global software network of you know major surveillance tech you know that across countries you know across jurisdictions can identify criminals anywhere you know can go through a database can find what their past crimes are where they're from and could just learn anything about them based on their their face being found on a camera somewhere
0: My data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me And enter code lawfare twenty at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare twenty code lawfare twenty.
1: So we've talked sort of in, in a lot of lot of broad terms and in, in the history of Xinjiang, but I want to move now to the personal cost and the human cost of the policies that are being executed in Xinjiang. You decided to tell the story of surveillance by following a few different people in the book. I'm just curious, why did you make that choice?
2: So a couple of reasons. I think that, um, first of all, there was so much coming out. There was so much new research coming out as I was setting out to write this book. But there wasn't really a clear narrative you know, about how Xinjiang got to this state that it's in now. You know, anyone could open a news article or a research report and, you know, figure out what was happening, but it wasn't clear, like, why is this happening now? And, you know, what, what are the steps that brought us here? Step one, two, three, four, and five, in sequential order. So I wanted to find characters whose life stories could tie together a lot of the investigative work that was already being done. And I wanted to find, in particular, Uyghur's and Kazakhs and other people from this region who had lived through the entire saga from start to finish. And by start, I don't just mean, you know, like in recent years, what's been happening there, but start to finish as in, you know, how did we get here in the big historical picture from say the Tiananmen Square massacre or the the Deng Xiaoping reforms, you know, of the previous 30 years through the 90s and 2000s you know like how do we get from that stage when china is emerging as this global power and you know people all over the world including president bill clinton at the time had declared that china you know might become a democracy that the markets were a good way to you know open up people to this possibility of liberal democratic governance how, you know how do we get from that pinnacle of china related idealism to where we stand now which is that we you know, in the U S and the U S government oversee overwhelmingly see China as a major global and national security threat, and also a threat to this, the rule of law and democracy around the world. One of the interesting things about following the characters I found. So Mason is the protagonist. And I think she had a, a just a, a beautiful, but also a dark story in, you know, what she had been through. Um, she really showed, Me through her own tales of what it was like to live through this whole era, you know, just how misplaced idealism can do a lot of damage to people on the ground who are living and experiencing it. I I did not realize before I met her, just how optimistic people had been before the fall that we've seen now. And, you know, listening to her stories, she had been through a concentration camp. She got out. I was just you know it, it's it's hard to put in words, but it was just um it was so overpowering and overwhelming just listening to how how so much of what she had been through could have been avoided you know if if people realized what was going on in Xinjiang earlier if they did not follow the you know the Chinese narrative on how global politics should unfold. Um, so that's really the role in that. That's that's what I was trying to do. And also, just as a general rule, I tend to believe that good writing and good narrative storytelling anchors the story in a character or a handful of characters. I think that it's easy in a topic like this to overwhelm readers with lots of facts that have been dug up, you know, historical and current events uh, facts, but without giving it the context of what it's like to actually live through and, and experience what was happening.
1: So so I want to talk about Mesem for a second, because I think it really, as you said, illustrates how pervasive the the campaign is that's going on against the Uyghurs. Mason was someone who had totally bought into the system and wanted to even work for the government, wanted to become a diplomat. I was wondering if you could just talk about her hopes and dreams sort of without giving away too much.
2: Sure. So, Mason was a, a brilliant young woman uh, from the millennial generation. She, when I met her, she was in her late twenties. She had been living in Ankara, and she told me her story about how she was—you know—she was born in the 1980s in this period when, you know, she had swallowed the Kool Aid. Her family had swallowed the Kool Aid, and they—you know—she decided that she wanted to be a diplomat at a young age. She wanted to travel the world representing her country. She stood up, you know, every week she would perform the national anthem and sing patriotic songs. She really bought in just heavily to the Chinese propaganda, to the point where she couldn't differentiate between the fact that she came from the Uyghur ethnic group, and that, you know, she was also serving a communist party. Um, but then on top of that, she was not from the majority, like all all these identities, like she didn't really separate them and she just assumed that you know anyone from an ethnic minority can be a patriotic communist and that's why she wanted to serve her country so badly she also came from a, a very well to do family land previously a land holding family before communism that continued to prosper her father her father was a communist party cadre her mother was a teacher her grandparents were highly educated they had vast libraries of Persian and Arabic books full of of old mythology and tales and epics and poetry. Um, so she grew up, you know, marinating, she, she really marinated her mind in this sense of intellectual exploration and enjoyment. That was what she was all about. But her troubles really started first when she went to Beijing, she graduated near the top of her class in, in the entire region of Xinjiang, uh, went to Beijing at a great university. She was studying to, you know, become that diplomat. She wanted to be, and she encountered all the discrimination and the, the anger over these, you know, these terrorist attacks that were happening and, and the protests out in Xinjiang. Her professors wouldn't call on her. It was a very lonely time. And that's when she started exploring her Uyghur roots. She converted to Islam, began wearing a veil. She really started to ground herself in a sense of I am not them. I am a Uyghur. And I've come to realize that I'll never be accepted in this society despite all my accolades and achievements in my life. And so she graduated and traveled to Turkey, to Ankara. A lot of Uyghurs uh, used to study in Turkey because the the Turkish language is a, it's a related language and it's a similar culture. These are both Turkic ethnic groups. Um, So Turkey was a major hub for Uyghurs who wanted to go study or do whatever. And her problems escalated once she returned. And this is when the Chinese government labeled her an enemy of the state. You know, it's just, um, it's truly a tragedy. It's a catastrophe. But um, she was she was stripped of all the prestige she had before, labeled an enemy of the state, um, first called in to do interrogations every week. She had to install a, a government camera in her living room, and numerous other things and then eventually after the rise of Chen Guo, the communist party chief of Xinjiang she was ordered to go to two concentration camps one was a lower level security camp and uh, the other one was a higher security camp that she was ordered to the higher security one within minutes of arriving at the lower security one and so the book is about primarily about her story and you know what she dealt with as she had to enter this camp how she dealt with the the psychological torture, the mind games, sometimes the physical torture, and what it did to her identity and her sense of self, how she was forced to internalize the state and the party and its dictates as, as her total self, her total identity, and what it was like to recover from that. You know, how do you go from being completely brainwashed and and gaslit and forced to deny the whole reality around you to rejoining a society once you're out to being able to think again and to flourish and to have an imagination. Um, So it's, it's very much, I see it as a psychological book. I wanted to show these effects, you know, in addition to the bigger picture questions about, you know, how we got here historically and what political and social forces, you know, created this Xinjiang situation.
1: So there's one, one, sort of really specific thing that you just mentioned, which was installing a camera in in her home, a camera and microphone in her home. Now, I think to a lot of our listeners, this might come as a surprise, even some that have paid somewhat attention to the, the situation in Xinjiang. The people who live in the home have to install the camera, right? It's not like the government comes in when you're not there and installs it. Right. You
2: have to install your own camera. You can you know, hire the help of an engineer to do it, but the government shows up. And this has happened to many Uyghurs who I've interviewed. Um, it started in 2016 and escalated in 2017. You have to install a camera in your living room. You have to go to the local shop, buy the right electronics, the right camera, the right gadgets. And you have to put it behind usually a plastic or a clear uh, transparent casing behind a wall so you can't fiddle with it. And this, this surveils your house
1: 24-7. And just another thing that you mentioned a little bit earlier was the, the neighborhood watch system. I was wondering if you could really dive into the specifics of that, because along with the camera, it is just pretty shocking in terms of the amount of paranoia it would create.
2: Yes. So, there is the neighborhood watch system that I mentioned before, um, combined with the cameras and the AI surveillance. What this does to people is it—it it creates a sense of not being sure when you're being watched or how. I mean, you know that you're constantly being watched by a camera, but you never really know when a human is interacting. You know, with all this technology and maybe making a decision, or the AI is—you know—suddenly picking up something that you're doing and deciding that you're going to commit some. Pre-crime in the future, and the police need to take you to a camp. One of the analogies that some Uyghurs drew when talking to me was with this uh, the system called the Panopticon, um, which was pioneered by a, a British philosopher named Jeremy Bentham, uh, who inspired George Orwell, other people, and this is back in the 18th century. He figured out that if you wanted to control either prisoners or factory workers or whomever uh one of the great ways to do it was to set up this circular prison format in which there would be a, a sentry post in the center and the guard inside this post would look outwards you know, at all the prison cells that that are in this circular format around like a- around this this sentry post so the thing is that the guard could see all the prisoners whenever he wanted but the prisoners could not see the guard that that vision was obstructed So the effect this has is to keep everyone under control because nobody knows for sure, you know, is that prison guard, is he, is he watching you right now? Or maybe it's, does he have some kind of listening device and he he can hear everything you're saying to your cellmates? Uh, You know, is is he, does he have binoculars? Like how, how deep does the surveillance go? And as a result, um, you know, this brings uh, workers or prisoners in factory workers into line. It was a theory that was set up and numerous philosophers, you know, Michel Foucault, for example, have expounded and built on this idea over time, but it wasn't really until I think what's happening in Xinjiang now with all the technology that this vision has been truly realized on, you know, on a massive extent, we're talking covering millions of people before when authoritarian regimes wanted to set up this format of surveillance They had to rely on their own human minders and and there were more flaws in the system. But now this is a, this is a total dragnet of total surveillance covering every square meter. And no one knows, you know, like there's a riddle that everyone has in their minds in Xinjiang. And the riddle is like, where is the line? Like, what is acceptable? What can I do? And you know, what can I not do? If I, if I go to the, to, to the market today, Um, And I buy diapers for my kids. Is the AI going to like me more because I am, you know, a good parent? You know, if I go to the gas station, I'm refilling my car. If I do things in a different way, if I fill it up too fast and leave too quickly or the, you know, the guards find me suspicious, will the AI, you know, lower my trustworthiness just because I've done something that it has detected that is unusual in some way? And that's the riddle that no one is ever sure how to solve. I mean, it's like anything you do at any time can be taken as a crime against the state. And, you know, you can be swept away by these sudden police cars that come in and taken to a concentration camp. So that that is the effect of, you know, when we're talking cameras and surveillance technologies and human police officers watching the streets, um, it's really a panopticon in which no one knows for sure where that line is, and whether they should cross it
1: so we've we've talked a lot about what's happening within China, but a lot of the people that you spoke with are outside of China and countries like Turkey that you mentioned you know our listeners may think, oh, you know they're somewhat safe because they're in a foreign country, but that seems really far from the case. Walk us through some of the ways that the Chinese authorities track these weaker citizens down and essentially harass, or in some cases, even get local police to arrest them for extradition?
2: Oh, yeah. Worldwide, the Uyghurs are not safe. They are not safe, I mean, just pretty much anywhere. So obviously, you know, countries like the US and and the European Union will be certainly safer than other places, but particularly in the Middle East and in in places like that, uh, Central Asia, The Uyghurs are at constant risk of simply being swept up in mass and deported back to China. This is not an exaggeration because it's happened. This has happened in Egypt. I think Egypt is the most preeminent example in which uh, there were about 7,000 to 8,000 Uyghurs. And the Egyptian government about five years ago uh, signed a series of security and trade deals with China. And um, as part of those deals, the Egyptian police rounded up every Uyghur they could find and deported them, even though these Uyghurs uh, were pretty much entirely legal residents. A lot of them were students. They were studying Islam at local universities. Uh, I, I went to Egypt. I spoke to Uyghurs and hiding in there. This is all in the book. And just the fact that uh, you know the police could do that so swiftly, just find every Uyghur, and deport them, save for, you know, maybe the, the handful who managed to escape, the ones who I interviewed had escaped out of Egypt, and they, they now reside in France. It, it's just incredible that China has that power, that, you know, that countries are willing to deport an entire ethnic minority uh, to please, you know, Chinese money and to please Chinese interests, to get more of that more of that juicy honey in their government, so to speak. So Egypt, you know, huge egregious case. Um, I I mean, I could give you a personal story from America. I held my book launch at a a Uyghur restaurant in Washington, uh, D.C. And it it was, you know, like an in-person book launch party. I was there, you know, signing books. We were giving talks. We were eating Uyghur food and having a good time. And in the middle of this event, uh, four people, four Chinese men showed up. And abruptly started taking photos of the entire event, just taking photos of everyone there, uh, and then simply left after two minutes. And, you know, we saw them and we were, you know, the the restaurant owner was going to try to stop them and tell them to leave. But they just left. You know, it was just like a snap. It was like they came in, got their photos, they got clear photos of people's faces as clear as they could get, and then uh, left. Um, So obviously we can't say for sure whether that was, you know, they, they were Chinese government agents or whatever, but they certainly were, you know, up to no good. And, you know, we were also, this restaurant was not far from the Chinese embassy in Washington, D.C., and it was a Uyghur restaurant. So people are being monitored. And, uh, you know, I've heard stories from Uyghurs all over the world, Um, you know, in Holland, for example, some of them got death threats because they they had leaked Chinese government data and people would like send photos of the front of their house, send it to them on Facebook and Twitter just to, to, to show that they're being watched I don't think local authorities, you know, will put up with this. They'll, they'll certainly, you know, arrest any, you know, if they can find the perpetrators and arrest them. Um, but the reality is that China is trying to create a global network of, you know, U- Uyghur surveillance that is that exists everywhere, um, and that and that includes places like Washington D.C. and it includes, you know, developed countries like Germany and Holland, as well as, uh, you know, Middle Eastern countries such as Egypt and also. China is now trying to get Turkey to repatriate its Uyghurs. You know, this is really uh, terrifying stuff. So even the Taliban, China says it's going to support the Taliban. There were major uh, talks not long, a few months before uh, the the events, the takeover happened recently in Afghanistan. And, you know, there are Uyghurs who live in Afghanistan. And, you know, I I would not be surprised if the Taliban just turns on them and, and sends them back to China, where they will certainly be tortured and put in concentration camps, maybe even executed.
1: It's a lot, uh, a lot to digest there, but I want to move back to the Chinese tech industry for a second and talk about how they have essentially tried to export this surveillance model. In some cases, the Chinese government has helped them export the surveillance model to other countries, but I was wondering if you could sort of talk about how these Chinese tech companies are, are spreading these surveillance technologies across the world.
2: So uh, China is mostly spreading them through old style exports. The The Chinese government, you know, it, it extends its state power across the world through Belt and Road. These are more infrastructure projects. But one of the, you could say, a parallel project of the Chinese government is to install projects, to install surveillance in kind of middle income and lower income countries uh, in Central Asia, Africa, South America, for what it calls safe cities. Um, So safe cities or smart cities, these are the terms that the Chinese Communist Party and Chinese businesses often use to describe what they're doing. The way they pitch it to these countries is, um, you know, like this this is technology that will be an asset for your law enforcement, for traffic control. Um, You know, know, we promise that this tech will help you lower crimes and catch criminals or um, whatever it might be. But of course, you know, there is always the, the dark underbelly that no one ever says publicly. And it's the fact that authoritarian regimes have been using Chinese technology to uh, surveil and spy on opposition parties and dissidents, whomever it might be. There was a case in Uganda where this happened. I think also in uh, Kenya, there have been some some suspicions about this going on. Uzbekistan, uh, the government put out a really bizarre Orwellian statement in which they said uh, that they would use Chinese technology contracts to they quote digitally manage political affairs, uh, which essentially means they're just going to you know spy on people and surveil them. So you know the there's been a huge gap between the the rhetoric of you know how China and how these governments. You know, it say like how we're going to use it, and then how it's actually used. This technology, like any technology, is not safe in the hands of authoritarian tyrants and dictatorships and other regimes that don't respect human rights. But the difference is that, well, you know, in the U.S., there have been numerous eff- efforts to impose export controls and human rights-based sanctions. The the reality is that China doesn't really have any of this and doesn't really care about it, frankly. I mean, there there's not much discourse there over, you know, how are we going to restrain technology to try to protect the privacy of individuals and civil liberties? It's just, you know, it's not something that's really in in the contracts, I would suspect, when they're, you know, when they're selling these technologies to other regimes.
1: So for my, my final question, I want to ask you about a lot of the Uyghurs that you've talked to. Do they have any real hopes for the future? Have they, you know, been at all satisfied with any western government's response to the situation in Xinjiang?
2: So, most Uyghurs who I've spoken with are generally satisfied with the US response in particular. Uh most of them tell me that, you know, despite there's always going to be a little bit of uh discontent, maybe not enough is being done, but the Uyghurs I know who live in the US do tend to be for the most part, patriotic um, for America. Interestingly, a lot of them were humongous Trump supporters back when he was in office. They thought that uh, America was maybe maybe the only nation with enough power to to stand on its own against another another you know global power that's as big as China. A lot of them were disappointed, in particular uh, with the responses of of Muslim Middle Eastern countries, so Saudi Arabia, Iran. Pakistan, um, numerous others. The UAE, um, the UAE actually is now believed to have a Chinese black prison where they're, you know, holding Uyghur prisoners um, against their will, kind of enhanced interrogation. But now uh, China's doing it. So uh, you know, in all these countries, these these Middle Eastern Muslim countries, these authoritarian regimes, they they have written United Nations documents that they've signed in which they've said that they support China, that China is doing its best to. Um, you know, maintain stability within its borders, and this is good for China, so therefore we support China. There is a clear gap that has emerged around the Uyghur issue, and it really is the U.S. and the Five Eyes and the European Union, the more developed democracies of the world, of the West, uh, and Japan, too, have made stands against China. Uh, and it's treatment of the Uyghurs, whereas, uh, you know, the authoritarian nations of the world, the poorer nations of the world that might need Chinese money have, for the most part, cowered out. You know, they they don't really see this as an issue worth raising. And, you know, understandably so in their own national interests. Uh, I don't think that they see a reason to anger China when you know, China is writing the checks right now. China has enormous potential. It's better just to ignore human rights.
1: It's a uh, somewhat bleak note, but we're going to leave it there. Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Bryce. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please share the Lawfare Podcast and give us a five-star review on iTunes. Go to thelawfarestore.com for brand new Lawfare pens, lanyards, t-shirts, and socks. The podcast is produced and edited by Jen Howell, and your audio engineer is Hamza Shitu of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.
2: powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend.
0: Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen
1: to podcasts.
2: Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com